Well, this is our second week in our fall series in Genesis, and I have to say I'm thrilled to be walking through these stories together. The idea of our walking through Genesis and, and these narratives, each basically each autumn season, and I know it's not officially autumn, but you look outside and it's saying otherwise. But the, the idea for going back to these stories uh, for a section each year stems from the fact that we live in a very personalized culture that exalts the new while kind of devaluing roots and extended family and the significance of history. Now, because we are Christians and part of this church, we are by nature, whether we like it or not, connected to a much larger story than our own. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are tied to a great lineage that extends through church history and back through the New Testament and back to the very beginnings of recorded faith history. By going back to the beginning in Genesis, we get to see how the very story we find ourselves in today actually began. And one of the fun parts of exploring Genesis is that it's primarily narrative. Now, don't get me wrong, I love other types of scripture like the Psalms, for example. I mean, just the raw emotion that is in the Psalms definitely has a place for me. I, I, I think that Paul's letters are very instructional and, you know, the church wouldn't be the same without them. Very important. But there's something about biblical narrative that captures my heart. Even unbelieving scholars of Hebrew find that Genesis is one of the gems of all ancient literature, period. It's more than good storytelling, though. I think I especially like biblical narrative because it's more than just ideas and concepts, more than just do this or don't do that. It's a window into an example of God intervening in real people's lives in real situations. Narratives give us an example of how God really is in real life. See, many times, maybe if you've grown up around church or have just started coming to church and you hear these theological doctrines like God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and we learn these important doctrines about God. But narratives remind us that all of our doctrines, as important as they are, originate out of these stories. That's how the first the theologians get to the conclusion of these doctrines about God. We observe how God really is as he interacts with people. Now, last week we began the saga of Abraham. And beginning in, in Genesis 11:27, we learned that Abraham was the son of Terah, who was a great, 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 lots of greats, grandson of Shem, who was the son of Noah, who was the guy with the ark. Remember Noah? Okay. So humanity is going downhill. Everybody's still... Continuing to sin worse and worse and worse. And Abraham comes from this family that worshipped a moon god named Sin. He was, his wife was unable to have children. In biblical terms, Abram was anything but blessed. And then God intervened in his life. He reached out to Abram and absolutely changed not only his life, but the course of the world forever. And here's kind of what we, uh, the punchline of what we covered last week. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make your name, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the people which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed or your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on continuing toward the Negev. So God calls this apparent nobody and claims that through him, the guy who's married to a lady who's barren, through him he's going to bless the whole world. This is awesome news. This is incredible good news to Abram. And of course, the call to Abram was extreme. It would require great faith. Because in order to receive this promise, he'd have to leave his homeland, leave everything he had ever known behind. But... What we read is that Abram sets out in faith, and we learn that he enters the land of Canaan. He obeys, and then something amazing happens. The Lord appeared to Abram at this oak of Moreh. Moreh means oracle. It was probably a place of pagan worship where people would go up and make their sacrifices to their local gods. People used to worship on mountaintops and near big trees because they thought that they would extend closer to heaven. They thought they were somehow closer to their gods. We don't learn in the scripture how God appears to Abraham. Uh, you know, we don't get a burning bush story or, you know, he appeared as this or that. Uh, that's not really important to the story, actually. Now, what would have been important to the story and to Abram and to the original maybe hearers of this story were two things. First, this is vital. God appeared not only in Ur of the Chaldeans, back where Abram got his call, but then he appears again in Canaan, nearly a thousand miles apart. That's a big deal because, you see, in the ancient Near East, people believed that uh, there were many gods and that each god had his own kind of territory. So in Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, you have seen the, the moon god was the main guy there. And later on in, in Canaan, you would have Baal would be the main one. And, and in uh, Egypt, you'd have many gods, but kind of Ra was the main one. And, and, and they had their own geographical boundary, and that was their dominion. But they didn't get to go outside that boundary. But here, this God that, that called Abram is the God of all this land over a thousand miles. Basically, the known world in Abram's thinking. So this God that, that called him is sovereign over all these lands. The second thing is something that the narrator tells us. He doesn't say that God appeared to Abram. He says that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and that means that's a, a euphemism basically or a, a way of circumventing saying Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. The personal name of God. It means the covenant-keeping God. So not only is Abram's God vast and powerful, he can show up in Ur, he can show up in Canaan. He is a powerful God. But this, by giving Abram his personal name, Yahweh, he's also a personal and faithful God. It means one thing to have a powerful God, and that could be okay, but what if 
that powerful God was a jerk, well, then you're in big trouble. But, but this powerful God is also the covenant-keeping God who reveals himself with his personal name. So how does Abram respond? He responds by worshiping. He responds by worshiping, and, and, and he doesn't use the existing altars that are there at that Oak of Mori that were left behind by maybe the, uh, the, the pagan worshipers. He creates a new altar because he's recognizing that he's dealing with a God like he's never dealt with before. In fact, he's probably never dealt with anything but a statue before. He worships. And really, it's an amazing scene. It, it's so encouraging. Abram, you know, he steps out in faith. He leaves everything he's known. He gets to Canaan after this thousand-mile journey, and then God shows up to him, and oh, yay, you know, everything's, everything seems good. Wow, what confirmation that he made the right decision, right? Everything feels right in the world. It's like coming to church and seeing all your friends and hearing a good message or not so good and, and getting good food afterwards, and you just feel like, oh, everything's great in the world. There's a problem with that, isn't there? It, it's not very realistic. Frankly, it's kind of hard to relate with because life is very rarely like that, where everything is just works out perfectly all the time. And actually, if the story ended there, it wouldn't be very interesting. There's no real tension. Well, the story has actually hardly begun. And this evening, we're going to focus on the second half of this saga. The part where the going gets rough. Would you stand with me as we read the rest of Genesis 12, beginning in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about, when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And when Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Go take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Father, this is a <laughs> scandalous story, really. And it doesn't fit well into uh, some of our sanitized view of the Bible. 
Uh, I thank you that there are stories like this uh, in Holy Scripture <laughs> because it reveals uh, a ring of truth, um, the messiness of life. I pray that you give us wisdom to hear what it is you're saying to us. And Lord, give us the courage to obey what it is you're saying to us, to believe it. Amen. You may be seated. So, I mean, what a story, right? God appears to Abram and promised that he would give all this land to his descendants, literally to his seed, and just kind of a, kind of a thing off on the side. You've heard me mention over and over again that two key words in this whole Genesis saga, we're going to hear seed and land. These are key words. So when you see those in the scripture, and sometimes it'll be hidden in your English, seed will be descendants, which is the same thing. I'll point that out, and you'll know that something special is going on. But... The next scene is going to build all kinds of tension to this promise that God makes to Abram. And you might want to be asking two questions under the surface as we move forward. Will Abram trust God and his promises when the going get tough? Will Abram trust God and his promises when the going gets tough? And will the God that allowed the going to get tough, will the God that allowed that going to get tough... Fulfill his promise. And this is where the story connects with us on a personal level. We may not have famines and pharaohs in the Pacific Northwest, but the going certainly gets tough in our lives. And we're faced with situations time and time again that can cause doubt in our faith, doubt in the goodness of God. This story takes place thousands of years ago in a land across the world in a culture that's even further from us than, than the geography. So here's what we're going to do. Let's work through the story together. And what I'll try and do is explain some of the nuances so that we uh, can see some of the things that would be obvious to an early Bible reader. And then we'll go back through and decide maybe what God is saying to us. Deal? Okay, so here we go. We know that Abram traveled to the Negev, which is the southern part of Palestine. It gets an average uh, annual rainfall of less than eight inches a year. Okay, that's, that's not the Pacific Northwest. Well, uh, without modern irrigation, the growing season was very short. And if one year you missed the rainy season, well, you're in big trouble. Abram had livestock. He had a wife. He had Lot, his nephew. He had Lot's wife. He had servants. He had all these animals. And it says that the, the famine in the land was very severe. So without a word from God, Abram heads south to Egypt because Egypt is built on what? The Nile River. And it rarely gets droughts like the Negev gets. The odd thing about Abram's decision is that he decided to sojourn there. That might be what it says in your English Bible. The Hebrew word is ger. I know, ger. Uh, my kids say that when they're pretending to be bears. But seriously, the word is ger, and it connotes the idea of settling in a foreign land as an alien. It can mean temporarily, but more often it, it's the word that you would use for moving to a new place indefinitely. And so the idea is that Abram is leaving the promised land that God gave him, and he's just settling for this new place. He's like kind of, well, I just need to eat, so forget about this land that God was going to give me. His problem is that he makes a plan to solve his issues 
apparently without consulting Yahweh at all. He just comes up with his own deal. And just before he gets to Egypt, he's overcome with fear for his own life. Doesn't seem like he's too interested in, in saving Saray. He, he's, he's fearful of his own life, and so he devises a cunning plan. Now, we learn that Saray is 65 years old and that she was very beautiful. And, you know, people always want to say, well, how could that be? Well, come on. Some very beautiful 65-year-old women and older. Um, some people try to explain this away. They say, well, back then maybe people aged differently. I don't know. I can't really say either way. They, they could say that, um, oh, back then the ideals of beauty were different. And I've heard that one too. That could be. Uh, the, what we don't know is what we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us in what way Saray was beautiful. But we do know this. Abram thought she was beautiful, and the Egyptians thought she was so beautiful that they took her to Pharaoh, okay? So I don't know how you argue with that. She's hot. And, 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 and so we, we just know that the beauty thing was an issue. Now, Saray technically was Abram's half-sister. They had the same dad and different moms, and I know that that's gross. And it ought to be. But this was way before even Leviticus came out. They hadn't seen that one on the charts yet. And it was before any of those types of laws. And when you think about it, how do you start something from scratch without marrying your own sister once in a while? You know, you had to get some people in the land first. So, again, this is not saying that that's okay. It's just the way it was. Now, so some people point out the fact that, well, hey, you know, it was his half-sister. Maybe that was kind of a shrewd move. Maybe that was a good move. I, I, I don't buy that at all. Here's why. The moment that Abram married his sister, she became his wife. Period. Period. That's it. And so even a half-lie is a whole truth. Uh, a half-lie is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. Thank you. Thank you. I saw you trying to help me there. <clears throat> Half-truth is a whole lie, uh, especially in this case, because she was 100% his wife. So overcome by fear, Abram put his wife and the promise in jeopardy. I mean, you ever think what could happen if he doesn't get her back, right? And, and here, so here's what may have been happening. Because like, How did this whole thing happen? It, Back in the day, you could have a sister, say, and if you didn't have a, a, a dad around, the, the, the brother would be in charge of her affairs. So you could say, okay, um, you could court my sister. And what someone would do if they're courting your sister would be to give you all kinds of gifts and try and butter you up. And then you would allow another guy to court your sister. So you get gifts from two guys. And you, you hope like a whole bunch of guys are interested in your sister. So then you get all these gifts. And then eventually you could decide which one gets to marry them. Now, his plan may have been... Hey, these princes of, Israel, uh, of Egypt will want to be interested in Saray, and here's what I'll do. I'll wait out this drought, maybe, and I'll, I'll keep them interested, and then as soon as I hear things are okay in the Negev, I could run back north. That could have been his plan. The problem is, it didn't get very far, because apparently she was so beautiful that these princes or nobles of Egypt were bragging about her to Pharaoh. And he said, oh, I want to check this out. And so he just takes her into his harem, into his house. And we don't know if Pharaoh married her or slept with her, but all the language in the story tends to point that direction. And it seems, it would seem like a lost cause, like Abram's dumb decision just put the whole promise in jeopardy. But God. Those are two of the most important words in Scripture. But God. But God. 
the promise maker is also the promise keeper. And he intervened and sent a plague to Egypt. It kind of sounds familiar like another story we know about, right? Where there's Israelites in Egypt and pharaohs and plagues. Anyway, a little foreshadowing perhaps. Uh, but instead of the plague affecting Abram like you would expect it to, he's the one who messed up, it affects Pharaoh. Pharaoh is punished, but Abram comes out rich. This is a weird story. In fact, Abram comes out extremely blessed. He receives gold, which would allow him to go to even a place of drought and buy food. See, before all his wealth was tied up in his animals, and you know what you need for animals is you need stuff for them to eat to keep them alive. But now he has gold, and he can stay even in a dry land and buy food. He acquired livestock and, and servants, and he even acquired camels, which was an extreme luxury. Most scholarship says that camels were not widely domesticated in Abram's day. Only a few people had them. It wasn't until much later that they became like horses and things. So, so he gets his uh, extremely rich out of this deal. And so what do you make of this story? What does this type of story even teach us? Who's the main character in this story? See, one of the hard parts about approaching a text like this is we often ask the wrong questions. We come at this ancient Eastern text from a modern Western mindset, and we look for what? Give me the application so when I leave church I can go do something, and give me the moral of the story. I know about morals of stories because I have kids and I'm reading them all these. Almost every book, there's a moral of the story. You don't be like this character or you don't get bread, like the, the red hen thing. And, or you do be like this character and you get a prize or, or whatever it is. That's not necessarily what's going on here. Now, in the prematurely canceled television show Arrested Development, uh, there's, this, there's this extremely dysfunctional family, if you haven't seen the show, the Bluth family. They, they're wealthy from the real estate dealings, uh, but the father's in prison for all this trouble and making houses on Iraq to Saddam Hussein and all these things. Uh, but the four children are all messed up and they have these flashback episodes where they're little kids and their parents used to try and teach them lessons. And the way that they would do that is with the family friend, J. Walter Weatherman, who had one arm. So in one episode, they are screaming in the back of the car and their dad is leaning back, hey, be quiet. And all of a sudden this, the car comes to a screeching halt. You see a man with his arm flying off and blood spraying on the car He's screaming, the kids are screaming, and then he stops screaming and goes over to their window and says, And that's why you don't scream in the car. It's this traumatizing event to teach them a lesson. This story with Abraham is not like that. Okay, it's not a moral lesson. It's not here to say, and that's why you don't lie to pharaohs. And it's also not here to say, if you lie, you're going to get golden camels. Right? Because neither one of those really work very well. In fact, the story is not even really about Abram. It's not even about you or I. I know that's a shock to the ego. The story's about God. It's a window into the faithfulness of God. Now, Abram has some qualities which with, uh, I, I think we can identify. He comes to a hard patch in life. A patch where it feels like God has forsaken him. And when the going got tough, Abram got afraid. Fear. It's the lack of faith. It's the opposite of faith. 
And when Abram got afraid, he panicked and tried to do something. He tried to do anything to regain control. He comes up with a plan. Can you, can you identify with that? Saying we trust God is easy in church, or it's easy when things are going well. But when we don't know, um, we don't know what kind of faith we really have until we're tested, right? When things get tough in your life, where do you turn first? To God or to your own ideas, your best strategy? Colin said it well in our Wednesday night Bible study. Abram was just trying to help God out. See, God made this promise to Abram, and things weren't going right in Abram's mind, so I'm just going to help God out. He, he seems to have a problem coming through on his promise. I'll help him out. Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he couldn't keep up his end of the promise. Maybe it's all up to me. And then what we see is absolutely amazing. Even when Abram is faithless, God is faithful. The story is not so much about Abram's faith or lack of faith or even our faith. It's about God's faithfulness. God breaks all the rules that this world is supposedly run by. God breaks all the rules that this world is supposedly run by. We think that the world is really run by pharaohs, by the powerful empires, by either our economy or world leaders. And the way that we're supposed to navigate this world is to outsmart or to outwork everybody else so that we can have a foothold in this world. But what we learn here in this story is that that kind of thinking is obsolete. That we have a God who is ridiculously sovereign and faithful to his plan and faithful to those he makes his promises to. Walter Brueggemann calls this economy of God an economy of gift. Listen to what he says. That would, be a, that would be strange to those who believe the claims of our managed world. Could we imagine that we live in a world ordered by gifts? <laughs> That's not how we think. We think we live in a world that is ordered by earning. Could we imagine a world that is ordered by gifts? It's much like the dilemma of speech. Brueggemann writes... If we could believe we are seriously addressed by the one who calls us into being, then the speaker could possibly be taken as the gift giver. But we are suspicious of serious speech and anyone bringing us gifts. Think about that. What if God and this economy that he's created in the world was an economy of gift? Nothing you can earn, nothing you can do to take it away. God made a promise to Abram, a promise to bless him and to curse those who curse him. The scary thing is that even though Abram was at fault, the curse still went to the Egyptians. We're not talking about fairness here, are we? There's nothing fair about this story. That's not how God works. And please understand me, we do not want God to be fair. Right? Because if God were fair, we would be under the horrible curse of judgment. If God were fair, we would not have put, he would not have put on flesh and died for you and I. Thank God that he's not fair. We're talking about a God who sees his plans come into fruition. While 
that should instill us, I think, with a certain holy fear, it should also give us hope like no other. And, by the way, don't think for a moment that your decisions don't matter. Remember, Abram was blessed with the intent, in fact, the command, that he would be a blessing to other people. Instead of being a blessing to the Egyptians, he brought a curse on them through his faithlessness. Abram's actions couldn't derail God's bigger picture plan, but he sure hurt a lot of people in the, in the way. Later on, there's a story in Genesis. Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, would enter Egypt. He'd be put in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But Joseph trusted in Yahweh. And when he had the chance, he helped his captors, the leaders of Egypt. God gave Joseph great wisdom and he was a blessing to Egypt. He became the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire. He was a blessing. The good news is that God is faithful even when we are not. Amen? How do we know this? Because God worked through a guy like Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and Judah, and people like Rahab, and Ruth, and David, and Solomon, and Mary, and Joseph. And through all of this, he gave us Jesus, who died while we were yet sinners, that he might defeat death and give you and I an opportunity for new eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful that you are not fair. That you are better than fair. That you are graceful and faithful. I thank you that uh, throughout eons of human failure, you remain faithful. That you came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. That you died for us. I know it sounds funny, but thank you for the opportunity to repent, to turn around, and to receive the blessing of forgiveness and new life. Lord, some may be doing that for the first time and some for the thousandth. But thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin when we confess them to you. Help us now to walk in the newness of life in Christ. Amen.